So Galatians 4, starting in verse 8, and I'm reading from the ESV. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you together for your word this morning. Thank you for giving it to us. Um, thank you for giving us your son. Uh, God, be with Pastor Kevin as he preaches. Would you bless the hours of study and writing that have been done this week? Uh, God, be with us today as a congregation as well. Give us your spirit to open our hearts and our minds. God, continue to deliver us from our sin. Make our sin look foolish and silly to us and make us never, ever want to go back to it. God, thank you above everything else for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome once again. Um, Aaron mentioned Cars Music, and I don't, I don't know if, oh, there he is. Bobby's giving back there. I'm thankful for the team today so much. Bobby has um, been doing double, triple duty. Um, he's, he's led Cars Music for a long time and done a fantastic job, and I'm just really thankful. We actually just sent off two of our best music leaders, one to Kenya, one to North Carolina, and over the last few months, and that's why we, we need more help, but Bobby and the team have just done a fantastic job of just pitching in and um, still um, leading us so, so well. Before I jump into the passage today, I want to just say a few things about the current COVID situation here in Columbia and, and what we're thinking as elders in Karas. We're, of course, aware of the increase of cases in the U.S. and in Boone County. We're concerned about the Delta variant and where things do, seem to be going, and we'll continue to monitor it going forward. As we've said, we highly encourage you, if you've not been vaccinated, to pursue that. <coughs> That's really the path for us all forward. If you have concerns, and we understand those, we have pastors willing to talk to you. We have physicians here willing to, to speak to you. Also, as we've communicated, when we gather on Sundays or when you're in our building, if you've not been vaccinated, please wear a mask. That's important because that limits potential spread, but it also protects the vulnerable, particularly our children, uh, people who may not be able to get vaccinated. And remember, the balcony is still available during our Sunday gatherings if you want to social distance. So just stay tuned for further updates as we move ahead. But here's a question. What about COVID that I want to start with today that I think will lead us into our text? What we've all gone through over the past couple of years, you know, quarantined at home, wearing our masks, watching people die, seeing people suffer, experiencing that ourselves, why would we ever want to go back, right? We've experienced life as we knew it before, once again. We felt more and more freedom throughout the summer. Why would we ever want to turn around and experience it all again? It just seems so upside down to me, right? It, it blows my mind. 
And I really think that's what the Apostle Paul is feeling here, if he didn't grasp that from the passage. People are turning around, and it just seems so upside down to him. He's writing to this family of believers in this place called Galatia. Paul has seen the power of God in their midst. They've turned from this life of idolatry. They've turned to the one living true God. But now these false teachers have wormed their way in. They're leading those believers astray. They're losing their minds. And Paul's about to completely lose his. They, they've tasted life in Jesus. They've had their shackles removed. And now they're getting fitted for them again. They're heading straight back toward the pathway of death. They're turning around and Paul is screaming, shouting through this letter, No! Stop! You've got everything turned upside down. That's what I think is going on here in Galatians 4, 8 through 11. First, Paul reminds them of where they've come from. Second, he asks them why they'd ever want to go back. Third, he tells them what's at stake. So he points to their past. Questions their present. He warns them of their future. So we're going to dive into those three angles, and then I'm going to close with an extended rant about why I think we need this so much today. Well, Paul starts by talking about their past. He reminds them of their background and journey in verse 8. He says again, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. They, they first didn't know the one true God. So remember that those Christians in Galatia were Gentiles. They were non-Jews, like most of us. They were pagans before Christ. They did not know the God of the Bible. And Paul here isn't talking about intellectual knowledge, although they probably lack that. He's talking about experiential knowledge. They didn't have a relationship with him. Back then, in those days, they didn't love him. They didn't trust him. There was this emptiness there. They had this void until they heard the gospel that Paul came and preached. They second, it says, were enslaved to false gods. They were caught in this life of trying to make the gods happen. Offering sacrifices in temple worship. Abusing their bodies through immoral living. They worshipped those idols. They were caught in it. They were enslaved by it, I think, in a couple of senses. They served those gods, literally, trying to pacify and please them. They were caught in this loop of trying to do enough to stay in their good graces. They served them through their actions. That's what slavery is. Paul's reminding them of that life that God had rescued them from. And that's the other angle, I think, on their chains. At a deeper level. In their hearts, they were trapped. They needed rescue spiritually. They were in bondage. They know, had no categories of a new, better way. They weren't reaching up for any kind of help. They were dependent upon someone else to step in and release them. And God did that. That's where they once were. Now, on the surface, of course, we may have difficulty relating to this. Statues, sacrifices... But those symbols, those rituals, they just represented things that enslave us just as much today. We may not have a god of sex and fertility, or a deity of commerce and agriculture that we're sacrificing animals to, right? 
But we still serve sex and we still bow down to money. Maybe we worship sex through an extra three hours of work at the gym or bow down to money by an extra three hours at the office. That is our sacrifice. That's how we worship. When it works, we're in heaven, right? But when it doesn't, we feel like hell. And we need rescue. That was us if we're in Christ. We didn't know this love. We were there slaving away. Well, Paul says by nature, they are not gods. They, the idols are not real. They do not exist. They're weak. Paul explains further in verse 9. They don't hear. They don't save. They're worthless. No glory to them at all. They'll only disappoint us. Not just the statues, but what they represent. They are not the creator of all things. They're things that he has made. But Paul goes even deeper. Beneath those desires are the elementary principles of the world. Something he mentions also in verse 3. Demonic powers. They have the Galatians in chains. They still bind people today, deceiving people into taking good things and making them God things and leading us to destroy those things, harming us, dishonoring God. That was those Galatians, Paul says, but that was also us, if we believe. Now, that may sting our ears a little, right? But that was you and me. We didn't know this love and we were enslaved. Now, Paul reminds them of this because he's trying to get to another point, one we see in verse 9, that addresses their present. Paul gives a question and a rebuke here. He again writes, But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul again, I've said this, but he screams at them, through this papyrus or whatever it was, how can you turn around? How can you possibly go back? How can you get everything turned so upside down? And catch what he says. Now that you're known, now that you've been free, I think to really grasp what's going on here, we need to be reminded of some really important Old Testament background, really two of the biggest moments of that part of our Bible. First, we go way back, where humanity is plunged into sin yet again. And we band together to build this big tower in our honor, and the Lord smashes it like a stack of, of Jenga blocks. But He doesn't just walk away. He stretches out His hand to us again, and He speaks to this man, originally named Abram, in the desert. He's a pagan man. He doesn't know the one true God. And the Lord makes promises to him. He makes what we call a covenant with him. He is going to give him a great land. He's going to turn him, this one man who can't have kids, into a great people. And he's going to use it to bless all the people of the earth. So God chooses a people, starting with that man Abraham. And out of him comes that nation Israel. The father of that nation doesn't somehow stumble upon the path to know God. The path comes and finds him. Abraham is graciously known by our God. God chooses a people to be in covenant relationship with him. Second, well, that people grows in number, right? They find themselves 
for a, a number of reasons in another land, and it's Egypt, and they get so big that they intimidate the Pharaoh, their king, and he ends up enslaving them for 400 years. So they're in bondage to that king, to his false gods, and the Lord delivers them. How does he do it? Well, through plagues, yeah, that they humble and assault each of those idols, but fully, finally, through blood, right? The Israelites, they paint blood on the door. The Egyptian firstborn sons are killed, and then those behind the red doors are spared. And Moses the prophet leads them out through water. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land, and God takes those covenant people, and he rescues them. So in Abraham, we see a picture of our election. Through Moses, we see a picture of our redemption. Both of those stories point ahead to those who believe, and they show up right here in Galatians. God has chosen a people, a family, a people who need to be freed by blood. People who only know God because he's known us first. People who are free only because of the work of Jesus. Right. So Paul's preaching to them, he's preaching to us. Why would you go back now that God intimately knows you and you him? That's what that word know there means. It's actually a term used for sexual intimacy in the Old Testament. So you see a lot of those genealogies. So-and-so knew so-and-so, so-and-so knew so-and-so. Yeah, there's a reason why it's resulted in kids, because it's that kind of intimacy. That's how we know God, we know Him, and He knows us intimately. Why would we turn from that kind of love? And why would we go back to the chains? It brings to mind, I think, the Israelites. They're, they're looking longingly back at Egypt. You know, they're en route to the promised land. They're, they're getting tired, they're, they're frankly scared, and they start grumbling at Moses. They're wishing they could go back to those days. Days that they know were not great, but at least they were days that they knew what to expect. God says to us, you're seriously going to turn around from this family, from my love, and put on the shackles again, and follow that master? Really? That's Paul's rebuke here. For the Galatians, for us. Because the pull is so strong, and those elementary principles, they chase us every bit as much as those Egyptian soldiers did. Now, over the past couple of years, I've seen, as you maybe have, numerous believers succumb to their schemes, and one of Christ's parables has continually come to mind. Remember the two soils. Okay, so Mark 4 is a good place to refresh yourself. Jesus likes parables, and he gives this one, and it explains it. But Jesus says, first of all, the word, the gospel, is like seed that gets sown. Some gets tossed along the path, and the enemy, like a bird, immediately comes and gobbles it up, and nothing happens. Some gets planted in good soil, and it grows up and bears much fruit. And the implication is that's the kind of hearts we should desire. But it's the other two soils that I want you to think about. Do you remember what those are? There's rocky ground where the seed doesn't get down deep 
it ends up growing up too fast and it dies there in the rocks, Jesus says what? He says this is like the trials and persecutions that hit our lives. They tempt us to turn away. There's also the thorny ground. Those, those weeds, they, they grow up and they choke out those plants and those plants also die. Christ says those, those are like the, the cares of the world, the love of money that tries to pull us away. Those are the two soils there. The stony, the thorny, the, the twin temptations that we have to think about and worry about. And what are still drawing people away today? When you see people turn around, maybe they think following Jesus is too hard or, yeah, they're embarrassed by his followers. Or they can't fight off the lust for money or power anymore. Remember those soils. As we're tempted to, the, to sacrifice to the God of money and possessions. Or the God of health and comfort. Remember the soils and remember Paul's words here. What are you thinking? How can we go back? To wandering in the desert without father or family. Or to serving false gods trapped in that life. Now that we are in Christ. Let's hear that today, Karas, because if we don't, Paul says bad things will happen. And that's what Paul the Apostle gives them next, a concern, a warning about their future. In verses 10 and 11, hear those verses once again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now, you may not have heard this. You may not even heard of him. But I heard a few days ago that M. Night Shyamalan has another film. Now, I do think that if you read the New Testament and then read back through the Old, I do think that you see elect people everywhere. But I've made that joke before, and you may not even get it anyhow. And that's not the point that I want to make here. But um, Shyamalan's films always have a twist where everything gets turned upside down at the end. Where the floor kind of drops out from under you at the end. The sixth sense is probably his best example, but it's just one of those. There's that twist. After studying this passage and, and digging into it for a while, maybe it took me longer than most people, but it just became very obvious that there is a massive twist here. One that would have raised the heart rate of the false teachers who were there in Galatia. One that would have put them in a cold sweat. Uh, what is that? Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. What is Paul talking about there? Days, months, seasons, years? What's wrong with that? He's talking about the Jewish calendar. The Sabbath. The feasts. All that stuff. So try to picture this scenario with me. Okay, again, you have these teachers over here that we've labeled the Judaizers. And they're telling these non-Jews over here... If you want to be legit Christians, you have to be good Jews first. They're like, you have to keep the food laws. Right? You need to be circumcised. You have to follow that calendar. And they're there. They're, they're, they're probably in the room and they're hearing this letter read. They're following Paul word by word. And they're hearing, you know, Gentiles, once you didn't know God, you were enslaved to false gods. And they're like, yeah. And they're nodding in agreement. But now you're his, you're free, and so they're no doubt just like, yeah, amen. They hear, why would you go back? Why would you live under Satan again? And they're following right along. And then they hear these words, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And their minds would have been like completely blown. 
And they probably would have wanted to toss the scroll in the fireplace because it's a, a massive twist. Here's why Paul is saying, and he's warning us, that going back to that old-time religion of doing good deeds and trying to earn God's stamp of approval, to return to this vain attempt to prove yourself to him, yourself, and others, it's definitely just as bad. It's pretty much, in fact, the same as sacrificing the statues of stone and bowing before those images. Because the true God doesn't work that way. He never has. It may even be worse because it's clothed in all this religious language. And for that reason, it's just so deceitful. I mentioned the elementary principles. But what is the elementary principle? Yeah, Satan. But more than that, what was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve? Hey, you don't need God. You can do what you want. You can be God. You can save yourself. And that's how we ended up slaving outside the garden and building this scaffolding to the sky. Earlier, I talked about the two soils. Do you remember the two sons? Luke 15. You know, you have the, the prodigal son. Jesus tells this, this story. Um, the younger son, he asked for an advance on his inheritance. He basically said, Dad, I wish you were dead already. And he leaves his father, he goes out, he blows it, all in wild, immoral living. But he comes to his senses and he returns. He begs his dad's mercy, but he's all ready to give it. And he's met with this warm embrace. But there's the older son, right? His arms are folded, he's looking down his nose, he's judging his brother. He's drawing his dad's attention to his scorecard. He's comparing it to younger Joe over there. While everyone else is around partying and celebrating. Why is Jesus talking like this? He's going in night on the Pharisees. They're like, they're, they're tracking with him. They're like, yeah, don't be pagans and sleep with hookers and squander your inheritance. Preach to Jesus. And the story is with like, don't be like those Pharisees who are self-righteous. That's a pathway to hell. And that's what Paul is doing here too. Tim, Tim Keller has said for years, picture Christ dying between two thieves. On one side, you have irreligion, you have relativism. That's the younger brother, that's the life of Satan, where you do what you like. But on the other side is religion or legalism, and that's the older brother, that's trying to keep all the rules. They're both opposed to the gospel. They both keep us from the knowledge of God. They both are ways to try to control God. They're both lives of slavery. And they both leave us empty. But the older brother may in fact do more harm because it easily sucks us back in and it tragically confuses the world. Back in the day, you may not know this, but we rented out this space. So we had a church here that they would have their worship gathering and then we would... They would clear out and we would have hours. And because of that, we literally had to put on our website that we started at 11-ish. Because we didn't know when we'd get through all the sound issues and such. But we were moving in there. I think it was our first Sunday. And Pastor Rob walked in. Maybe like today. I don't know. Yeah, like today. Wearing a baseball cap. Okay. It might have been the same hat. I think he's upgraded since <laughs> got a new one, but he was approached by an older member of that church, 
And that guy proceeded to tear into Rob for having the nerve to come into the house of God wearing a hat. What if Rob would have said something like this? Hey, do you see that guy over there? You know what he did last night? Well, he got drunk. He did something he shouldn't have, and he can't even remember her name. Your issue with my hat? It's just as wicked as that. Maybe even more, because that guy's over, like, doubled over in tears, and you're in my face with your chest stuck out. A couple of weeks ago, my family and I were on vacation. We were in Clearwater, Florida, and if you didn't know this, it's the home, it's the HQ of a pretty famous, notorious religion called Scientology. So we learned that, that Tom Cruise has got his like penthouse suite on um, blocks away so he can get there whenever he wants. But Scientology is literally a religion made up by a sci-fi author. You truly also work your way up in Scientology by making payments. Thus, why Tom Cruise has done something. Now, I have no doubt there, though, they're, they're in the Bible Belt. There are Christian churches within a stone's throw away. There's a decent chance, like we all do, that they've got some legalism. Maybe it's rampant there, where it's do this, don't do that, dress like that, vote like that. God will like you, he won't be mad at you. If that's the case, I think everybody would be better off if they just wrote their checks for Tom Cruise. Because it wouldn't at least be in the name of Jesus. But it's truly all the same thing. They both worship false gods. They just take different payment methods. Paul calls them on this. The irreligious, the formerly irreligious, right in front of the religious, it screams, do not turn around. And he follows it up with this fear, with this warning. Here, verse 11 again. I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. So the apostle Paul is saying, I have seen the movie and I don't want to see it again. I've seen it too many times. This is where it's going. The way you're acting, you are going to have wasted all of my time. I've poured out everything for you and that's what we'll look at next week. And it's all going to amount to nothing. My ministry will have been in vain. Your life will have been in vain. Here's what we have to hear. We can't go back to that life or it'll lead to death. Don't misunderstand me. The Lord doesn't lose those that he has chosen. As Paul says elsewhere in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good, and work, a good work in you will bring it to completion. But that does not mean that we can just decide to sleep around or bounce people wearing hats. That's because those who are his, we're going to have ups and downs. But those who believe, they hear and they heed warnings like we see right here. And they do not fully and finally turn around and go back to Egypt and serve Pharaoh again. They don't completely walk away from him they own. So we, we can't insulate ourselves from these warnings by those promises. So think about your past, believer, where you come from, where you are now. Don't turn around. Because otherwise, sadness and despair will start now and last forever. But stay on this road Though it sure isn't easy. And joy will be ours with Jesus forever. We've been freed by Jesus. We've been known by God. Why would we ever go back? Well, today, so many are. I want to talk a little bit about this term, deconversion, as we wrap up today. But before deconversion, we have to think about conversion itself. Conversion is this word that I think makes us cringe a bit today. Because we want to be ourselves. 
right? We want to be real. We want to be authentic. And the thought of converting into anything, it really offends us. But that's all the while we, of course, spend, spend millions of hours and millions of dollars on self-help every day. But conversion is this theological term that means turning away from idolatry. idolatry. Walking away from slavery, from false religion, particularly the delusion that we can make ourselves, prove ourselves, save ourselves. It's throwing off that weight, leaving it behind, and turning to the one true God. And to a son who died for that sin, who earned our way to God. It's being ushered into freedom. It's being welcomed into family. So conversion is turning from something to something. Picture a child. She's tossed tragically around in the foster care system. She's in and out of abusive homes. Now she's adopted. She has a family. And things are different. For sure. She's freed from that terrible situation. She's now fully known and loved. Things have changed, but for the better, and she never wants to go back. Conversion isn't so much about not being you. It's about being the best version of you. It's about living the way you were intended to live. It's about you turning from what destroys you to what transforms you. I know there are many of you here who haven't fully made that turn. Or you're trying to sit somehow on the fence, take the plunge, trust in Christ, don't look back. But again, we're hearing today about people who are turning back. So deconversion is, a, is kind of a buzzword today, at least in, in my circles, where Christian leaders, social media celebrities are throwing up their hands and walking away. Let me tell you, there's a part of that I understand after what we've all been through. People are looking at supposed Christians, and they're observing their deeds, and they're overhearing their words, and they're like, if that's Christianity, like, I'm out. Right? It's leading them to question everything they've ever believed. Now, hear me, this doesn't surprise Jesus in the least. And it's just insane to think that, like, we're the first, like, people that have arrived, that are truly open-minded, that truly get it, that are walking away. Read your Bibles, read church history. Again, it displays... My conviction that genuine freedom and faith were never really there. But I'm just saying, don't let this rock you. And don't buy a couple of lies. Don't buy first this idea that those who are moving back into some intellectual, or that they're moving into some intellectual, morally neutral, humble, holy hipster state. They are moving back into idolatry. And of the worst kind. Where they smugly set the standard of what's true and good, and they strive to meet it themselves, and they teach it to the followers. They're moving back from the Father into slavery. And that's what Paul is begging the Galatians and us to never run back to. Don't buy second this idea that people rejecting faith Christianity fake Christianity are justified somehow in leaving the real thing. So imagine if you're the Galatian church here, they leave their life of paganism and sin. Now these, you think the people now are weird. Now these weird religious people are following them around and they're saying, yeah, don't eat that pork, man. And have you made your circumcision appointment yet? They're saying stuff like that. Like, 
That would freak me out. That would freak most of us here out. But what does Paul do here? He calls the believers back to the family, to their freedom. In a day when so many so-called Christians are acting like fools, this doesn't give us an excuse. It gives us a charge to go out and tell and show the real thing. Back to our favorite conversation today. These deconversions remind me some of the, the, of the pandemic and the, the most brazen upside-down responses. And again, there are legit concerns and reasons why some people have a different view, but you can throw your masks in the garbage and you can mock the vaccine all you want. You can flaunt your freedom. You can make fun of the weak. But you're probably going to die and you're going to be on a ventilator, which that ain't freedom, y'all. And you may take other people with you. And I think that illustrates what happens when we turn to the one true God and then just smugly post it on Instagram. What's the remedy? I want to talk about that. The remedy, the antidote to all this, and I'm almost done here. I think we have to go back to that word known in verse 9. Known. Paul wants them to grasp that. You're, think of think with me again, you're that child again, and you, you live 24 hours a day in the presence of your mom, and if she sees you at your best, and she sees you at your worst, she knows all your talents, she knows all your flaws. She knows everything about you, all your weaknesses, all your sins, and she loves you truly, not in spite of those flaws, but in the midst of them, maybe even more because of them. She loves you that deeply. But despite that, you decide that you're going to impress her. So you do some laundry, you clean up the house, you cook her dinner, you give her lots of compliments, you do, 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 and you try not to do anything bad or dumb. And one day you just kind of wake up and it just hits you that it's all a colossal waste of time because she loves you already. It doesn't make her love you anymore. She's adopted you and she's not going to abandon you. Friends, that's what the fact that God knows us, that he really loves us, does. It allows us to rest. It brings us joy. It sets us free. We can be ourselves. And yeah, then of course we want to please him. We want to obey but we're loved and it changes everything. Why don't we revel in that together? Why don't we tell other people about that? We are in the family of God and we will stay there. It's not because of anything that we've done or ever will do. Well, as I said, we, we got back recently from Clearwater, Florida. And we spent some time on the beach and it was really great. You maybe heard this illustration before that... You don't want to get pulled away by the currents of the sinful world. You know, end up miles away from your family down the, down the beach. Keep your eyes on Jesus, you know, like the lifeguard station. That'll preach. I think that's good. But I want to take it a different direction. Here's what I love doing when I'm in the ocean. It's called the backflip. Right? It's, it's definitely a moderately obese, middle-aged man thing to do. Definitely. But I, I love it. And I could stay there for a long time. There was this funny moment on the trip where I tried to teach my daughter how to do it, and this other guy, other moderately obese middle-aged guy, was like, yeah, that's, how do you do that? And like, I'm kind of coaching him. And thankfully, I didn't have to cradle his back, you know, his hairy back like a, a child or something. That would have been awkward. But what if we thought of our strategy more like the backflip? 
There we are, floating in God's kindness. His mercy moved along by his freedom, reveling in what he's done, gazing up into his love. Let me tell you, if we would do that, there's no use looking over in our chair. We couldn't care less about our flip-flops. That guy can steal our phone. Who cares? We're staying in the water. We're never going back. Only Jesus makes turning around feel completely upside down. Jesus is that amazing. Life in him is that good. My, my mind goes to John chapter 6. Jesus spreads the bread in front of the 5,000 and everyone eats up and they're in awe. But then he starts teaching about, hey, actually I'm the bread and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people get really weirded out and they start walking away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, you gone too? You leaving? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Carus, if we have been known by God, if we have been freed by the Son, we have life, we have it to the full, and there's nowhere else we could possibly go. Let's pray. God, do a work in us today. Root us in who we are in your Son. And do a work that renews our hearts, but protects us of the years ahead. So many people out there are just saying Christianity is easy and there's no bumps. Um, that's a lie. We're signed up for harder in a lot of ways. Um, but just protect us, insulate us from the lies as we move ahead and just keep our, our hearts rooted in you, our minds fixed on you, and um, protect us, I pray, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Everybody.